when I was in uh, eighth grade, I was really looking forward to playing football. I uh, played football as a kid from fourth through sixth grade. Couldn't play for the Pop Warner team because, uh, well, I was pretty tall. I went from five foot four in sixth grade and six feet tall in seventh grade and six six by tenth grade. So I grew 14 inches in a span of like three, four years. And uh, so I was too heavy, even though I was a skinny kid, couldn't play football. So I'm really, I'm working out with my buddies at the uh, junior high, the public school I went to. And my parents um, had been taking a class at our, we just started going to Little Baptist Church. And the class was, uh, it was a Bible Institute, and the class was how to raise godly children. And they realized they were not raising godly children. And one night, we had family meeting. Do y'all ever have family meeting at your house? Dad said, we're having a family meeting tonight. Everybody meet in the living, living room at 7 o'clock. So we came in, and my parents hadn't come in yet. And I said to my sisters, what did you do? And I said, what did you do? We couldn't figure it out. And at this time, I, I had been saved when I was 10. My dad led me to Christ through John 3. I don't think he even knew what Romans wrote. You must be born again. He walked me through it. I, I remember, and I know I was saved. But I hadn't grown any because we weren't in a church that preached the Bible. I'm in public school. I'm addicted to rock music. So there's no, there's no perpetual godly influence in our lives. Well, now we started going to a good church. And my parents said, you probably wondered tonight why we called this meeting. Well, it's not really about you. It's about us. Is this the divorce events? My parents had a really good relationship. You know, and every kid thinks Well, it wasn't about my parents, per se. But they said, kids, look... Um, We've been taking this class on how to raise godly children. And we realize we've won it. We have failed you kids. We have not raised you God's way. And my dad, 6'7", general contractor, tears coming down his face. He said, we want to ask you, will you please forgive us? Now, what do you say? I mean, I'm thinking, well, if I admit that we forgive you, does that mean that we admit we're failures too? Uh, <laughs> But you know, he said, yeah, we forgive you. And I was a rebellious kid. I remember, you know, I remember one time my dad went to correct me, and I, I hit my dad. And that's how bad it was. In, in Old Testament Israel, I've been taken out and stoned. A lot of kids my age were getting stoned, but not like that. Um, <laughs> I'd have been whipped to death, you know? So I remember then my dad looked at me specifically. Any, anybody in here 15 years old? Okay. So, so my dad, you pretend you're me for a minute. My dad looked at me and said, now, Rich, we think it's too late for you. <laughs> but we're going to try. No kidding. Direct quote. Think it's too late for you, but we're going to try anyway. I'm having thoughts of drug rehab. I hadn't even tried drugs. I'm having thoughts of that. Reform school, I didn't even have a rap sheet. I never got arrested for anything. But when your own dad thinks it's too late for you, that's pretty bad, right? But he was right. And I'll tell you what, it changed our family. The principle of God gives grace to the humble. My dad admitted the wrong, and he owned it. And just night before last, my two sisters and I were all together. It doesn't happen very often, and because of a wedding in Pensacola, my one sister had come down, my other sister's living there. And we were all going through Bibles that my mom and dad had owned. And everybody got a Bible from mom and a Bible from dad over the years. I got my dad's first Bible, it's an old, uh, it's a And my dad um, had started taking notes when he was a kid, when he was a, a young Christian. And right after that, he's just, I was, I was pulling out of this the other day. 
Um, here's a whole section on scripture he memorized. Well, this was in 2001. Genesis 1. This is just August of 2001. Scripture I memorized for the process of memorizing. Genesis 1, Exodus 20, 1 through 17, Numbers 23, 19, and like 10 passages out of Deuteronomy, just the month of August of 01, that's what he was memorizing. And then um, there's a whole study on Jesus as God, and going through um, the book of John. There are, here's a whole thing on God's sovereignty versus man's free will. I remember one time struggling with, you know, what's the balance at all? Uh, God's very clear, he says he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He also says he's not willing that any should perish. He also says no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw. And I asked my dad, Dad, how do you balance all this? He said, remember, Rich, scriptures never contradict, they only complement each other. He said, so do this. He said, I know you read through your Bible every year, hold a piece of paper in half, write God's sovereignty on one side, write human responsibility on this other side. As you read through, line up the scriptures in either column. And he said, when the year is done, go back and compare the scriptures in light of each other. There is no contradiction. If you have to force an interpretation to favor one side or the other, you're not doing justice to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And man, I'll tell you, what a, what a life-changing thing that was. I have absolute confidence that God so loved the world that he gave us only to get out of the And that he wants all men, and he draws all men to himself. And I also know, I didn't get saved because it was my initiative. It was God who does the drawing. God does the working. And, you know, this is just full. Here's one of abiding in Christ, the notes my dad took on that. And, and I just, this is a treasure trove of a man who meant it when he said, hey, listen, we've blown it, but we're going to try. And what a difference. I'm an evangelist. My sister Lauren is a pastor's wife. My sister Jen is a missionary with her husband. All three kids ended up in full-time ministry. And I said that to encourage you, because you may feel like, I am not the best dad. I'm a, it's not too late ever. Amen. So my dad died unexpectedly in 2008. He was only 65 years old. He had... Um, Closed down his business in uh, New Jersey. We had been commuting out to Emmanuel Baptist in Mechanicsburg, where I forgot Pastor was a youth pastor out there. Um, before his time there, we were commuting two and a half hours every Sunday. That had gone on for a year and a half plus. And God had been working with my dad's heart about ministry. He was willing, if God wanted him to. So I was already a student at Pensacola Christian. My dad decided to go there to get a Bible degree, a master's in Bible. He had a business degree from Rutgers, and he decided I'm going to get a thinking that God might have him in the ministry. So he just closed down his business, didn't sell it, just closed it down, moved the whole family in Florida. I'm in class with my dad in a preacher voice class, minister class, and some other classes. Really amazing. And I always thought my dad would end up in ministry. He didn't. Um, he had to get a job. He ended up working at Home Depot for the next 25 years. And I call him the missionary to Home Depot. One time I was going through his Bible after he died and I found pages of scripture that he'd written out by hand. And I said, Mom, what was this? She said, oh, he was memorizing. And he would write it out to make sure he got it word perfect. I said, these are all parables that Jesus told. I didn't know too many people that memorized parables. She said, oh, when, when Dad was at work, people might get in an argument or something, and to diffuse the situation, he would say, oh, that reminds me of a parable Jesus told. What's a parable, Dick? Well, it's a story, an earthly story that convey a heavenly truth. For instance, and he was quoted verbatim, and their mouth would drop open like this guy's a walking Bible. And it just gave him open opportunities to get the gospel to people. So my dad had died in May of 2008, right after that, this time when evangelists were in camps, you know, and 
I'm going to fly from Pensacola to, to wherever I was going for camp. So I walked up to the ticket agent. This is when we had paper tickets. And I gave it to her. She said, okay, Mr. Tozer, I'll be with you. you know. And it's kind of Tozer. We, we are related to the A.W. Tozer family, but our name got changed to Ellis Island. So we spell it T-O-Z-O-U-R. Same as T-O-Z-E-R. All of those people are related, but ours got changed. Kind of like, if you never saw Tozer, you're like looking at Savinsky, and how do you, how do you say that? never saw that, right? I don't know how to spell it because I've known his dad forever. But uh, Tozer, most people say Tozauer, Tozer, Tozur, you know, whatever. So she said, okay, I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. Tozer. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't often get my name pronounced the way our family said it. She said, well, I know a Mr. Tozer. I said, did you work at Holy Bar? She said, yeah. I said, do you see my tag there, Richard Tozer Jr.? I said, Dick Tozer was my dad. She said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. She knew everybody working with my dad had just passed away. She said, I'm so sorry about your loss. I said, I appreciate that. I said, you know what? My dad's better off than he's ever been. He's with the Lord. I'm confident of that. I want to give you this. I handed her a tract. And I said, um, this is why I have such confidence that my dad's okay. She said, oh, your dad gave me these all the time. <laughs> I said, did you ever read it? She said, I read everything Dick Tozer ever read. Wow. What a transformation. And by God's grace, you don't have to stay the person that you were. He wants you to be the person that you can become through Jesus Christ. Jim Balvano, when he you know, coached the North Carolina State Wolfpack, and, and they won that championship, and I'm... I'm I'm a basketball fan, and I and I, I like Carolina Tar Heels. I grew up in Michael Jordan's era. I love it. But I, I wanted to look back. I thought, Alvaro, I love the inspiration of that guy. In 1984, they knocked off Houston. And Houston had Akeem Olajuwon, you know, Clyde Drexler. I mean, that, Utah, and, and Alvaro's running around the court like a boy hug. But he's most famous for when he was battling cancer, you know, saying, uh, laugh every day. Cry every day, think every day, but don't quit. Don't ever, ever give up. But I like a quote he said about fatherhood. He said, my father gave me the most important thing any human can give another. He believed in me. My dad's Bible. Here's when I first started in evangelism, this is me, I look like a yeah, this is back in the early uh, 90s, mid-90s, and uh, my dad had this flyer in his Bible. And you know why my dad had this Bible? It wasn't like, oh, I'm proud of my son. It's because my dad prayed. And that was a reminder, oh, yeah, Rich is going to be in matches in Mississippi. I need to be praying for my son for those meetings. You know, I wanted to be that in my kids' world, uh, when their dad's not around anymore, they'll say, Dad, no, 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 D
David is speaking to his son. It's in 1 Kings 2 that we're going this last session. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 is what I want to cover. I'll tell you, I was inspired to preach this passage being at the Wilds one summer, and um, Dave Stratton has worked at the Wilds every summer forever. Uh, Dave is uh, a school administrator in Lima, Ohio. Uh, or Lima, sorry, what, Lima. My brother-in-law's from Lima, bro. Lima, Ohio. And uh, in the summer, he gets his time to be at the Wilds. And he had been away for a little bit, but I saw him last summer. He's back there, always wearing his referee uniform, you know. And Tuesday nights, they will dismiss the campers. And, and for years, it was they let the girls go first to uh, get ready. But then they give a little admonition to the boys. And I remember one time he said this, Fellas, it always amazes me how responsive girls are to God and his word. And how reluctant the guys usually are. Have you ever asked yourselves, what is it that makes a man a man? Is it athleticism? Is it brawn or muscle? Is it a macho image or a coy matter? I had to look up the word coy. It's a reluctance to commit. It's being non-committal. It's kind of keeping your distance. Is it a coy matter? He said, God sure defines family much differently than we do. And I want to challenge you fellows. Dig into what it means to be a man. And he shared with those guys just before they went back to their cabins that night this passage. And I thought, man, I've got to preach on that sometime. It's 1 Kings 2. Look at that, verses 1 to 4. 1 Kings chapter 2. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. He charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. By the way, when I read it in my mind, I think of it this way. I go the way of all the earth. And I was strong there Show thyself a man. Now, why do I think that when I'm reading? Well, what if David and Goliath, you know, David who killed a lion and bear with his bare hands. Yeah, but at this time, he's so frail. Remember, they had that woman, Abishai, lie with him. It wasn't a sexual thing. She would lie with him. It's like, like an electric blanket. He had no meat left on his bones. He is as frail as can be. So he's still got his mind. So here he is. He's about to die, and he says, I, I need to talk to Solomon. I go the way of all the earth, be thou strong therefore, show thyself a man, keep the charge of the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word, which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, then there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. You know, if you knew you were about to die, what, you, what would you talk to your son about? I don't have any sons, but, you know, I, I know some things I talk to my daughters about. David knows he's about to die. He says, Solomon, let's, let's talk. I call this be a man, three M's of biblical manhood. And the first M is mortality. Number one is understand mortality. Understand mortality. In verse 1, we read that he, he knew he would die. It's getting close. In verse 2, he says, I go the way of all the earth. Well, it is appointed unto man once to what? Die. I mean, everybody's going to face it. Ever since sin entered the world, death is a reality. I want you to hold your place here. Go to Psalm number 90 in the Bible. Psalm 90. What is the oldest uh, written scripture that we have in the Bible? you know? Yeah, as far as we know, the book of Job is the oldest. Uh, even before Genesis was written, Job was written. I always find that interesting because it, it deals with the topic of human suffering. And who was behind human suffering? It was Satan. 
Isn't that interesting? Everybody, so often people are like, oh, how could God let us suffer? Well, he gave a whole book to the Bible about it. And Job's saying, uh, or Satan said, oh, you, know, you take away the blessings and take away his health and he'll curse you in your face. No, no, I'll, I'll let you find that out. Um, by the way, if we all went through the same test, I wonder if we come out with a name. So, interesting though, Psalm 90 is believed to go back to the time of the book of Job. It's about equal as far as time period of when it was written um, by Moses. And it's in the Psalms. We usually think of the Psalms as being written largely by David or, uh, or Asaph. But here's a Psalm of Moses, way back. Lord, verse 1, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth. Ever thou hast formed the earth, the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So he's talking about the eternality of God. Look at verse 4. A thousand years of my sight are what is yesterday, when it's past, as a watch in the night. It's so fleeting. You know, somebody said, uh, sometimes it seems like the days are so long, but the years are so short. Sometimes days seem to drag on, but then you look back over your life, and I'll, and I'll tell you now that, you know, I've lived a few decades, every decade goes by more swiftly. Days are so long, but the years are so short. So look at verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow and soon cut off and we fly away. Okay, so um, threescore and ten, a score is how many? Yeah, twice. You remember Abraham Lincoln fourscore and seven years ago. So three score, all right, 60 plus 10, that's 70. And then four score would be what? 80. So lifespan between 70 and 80. I went back and looked. Um, statistics. The uh, international life expectancy, this is from the United Nations. From 2005 to 2010, they, they did a, a study on overall life expectancy. The nation with the longest life expectancy was Japan. The overall average life expectancy in Japan was 82 and a half years. For men, it was 79. That's the oldest life expectancy in the 21st century. The uh, fourth on the list was Israel. Average age for uh, people overall in Israel was 82. For men, 80. The United States was 38 on the list. In our country, the average life expectancy is 78.2 for, for the general population. For men, it's 75 and a half. The number, the last one on the list was Mozambique. In Mozambique, the overall life expectancy was 39. For men, it was 38 years old. Wow. The CIA put out a study in uh, 2011. The oldest uh, life expectancy there was in Monaco. Overall average was 89.7. For females, 94. No wonder Grace Kelly married the Prince of Monaco. And, uh, Swaziland was the last one on the list at that time, and the average life expectancy in Swaziland was 32 years old. Isn't that amazing? With all of modern medicine and technology, even now the statistics play out 70, 80. My, my mom used to quote that to me, and my mom died last year at 77, but she used to quote to me, you know, well, the days were a year, three score 10. I said, Mom, did it ever occur to you that the man that wrote that lived to 120? <laughs> Moses. It doesn't mean you have to die between 70 and 80, okay? Uh, but that is a general life expectancy. So if that's true, how much time you got left? Boy, COVID was a real reminder that you don't always get that long, do you? Understand mortality. Sometimes we live as if we're going to be around forever. So, so what's the right response? Look at verse uh, 12 here. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. What does he mean, number our days? 
Yeah, it, assess what you got. Think of the hourglass and time drift sifting down through the hourglass. And I think of that analogy when I'm praying for lost relatives. I've got a number of lost relatives who are in their 80s, and I've been praying for them literally for uh, 40 years. And I think about, I, I pray on the Lord that the sands of the hourglass are about to expire in their, their mortal life. They have got to get saved. Keep praying earnestly. I, you might have heard the little, uh, it's not really a poem, but it was one of these inspirational sayings. I've seen them in offices. A hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of car I drove, what kind of house I lived in, how much I had in my bank, nor what my clothes looked like. A hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of school I attended, what kind of phone I used, how large or small my church, but the world may be a little better because I was important in the life of a child. It's true, what are you leaving in, in the next generation? You say, well, I don't, I'm not a CEO. You know, I don't own my own business. You got a family? You're influencing somebody. I, I think about how every day my life as an evangelist is impacted by the Father that I have. That's what, that's what gets me cheered up. And I only had my dad until he was 65. My dad was my best man in my wedding. You know, I didn't see losing my dad at 65. But I will tell you this, they're going to capitalize on the time he had. So understand... Mortality. Number two is embrace masculinity. Second on masculinity. Embrace masculinity. So go to verse, we're back in First Kings, by the way. First Kings chapter 2. And uh, notice verse 2, the second part of the verse. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. Be strong. So in other words, be mighty. A is be mighty. First uh, Samuel 4, verse 9 the Philistines are giving a rally cry as Israel's attacking them, and they say, quit yourselves like men. Yeah. We think, quit? We'll be a bunch of quitters. Um, I, I thought if I only had one verse I could preach on in a man's conference, I said, okay, you got five minutes to challenge the men. What would you do? 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. What does that mean? Watch you, that's like the watchman who's on alert. Stand fast in the faith. That was what my dad taught me when I was young. Quit you like quit you like men. The word quit is a shortened form of acquit. What does it mean to acquit? To conduct oneself satisfactorily, especially under stress. To conduct oneself, in other words, in a way that passes the test. Quit you like men. Acquit yourselves. Huh. And then uh, quit you like men. Be strong. In fact, I jotted down Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We're not trying to build self-sufficient men. We're trying to build God-sufficient men. Amen. My my enabling is of God. It's not going to, oh, I'll tell you what, I can handle it. I'm a self-made man. You, ever, you know, you hear guys talk about picking themselves up by the bootstraps. That's it. You ever think about if you could reach down to the strap on the back of your boots and pick them up, what would happen? You'd fall on your face. That's a crazy analogy. No one picks himself up by his bootstraps. It's not God, I'm sorry, it's not self-enabling, it's God-enabling. So be, be mighty, but also be manly. Be manly. Um, and I mentioned, I won't take the time to reiterate, but I jotted down Genesis 1, 26 to 27. You know, God made the male and female. We looked at that. Uh, Leviticus 18, 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. God forbade homosexuality. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. We looked at this morning. The head of the, the, the man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. So be manly. So embrace masculinity. But finally, pursue maturity. Pursue maturity. Okay, look at verses 3 and 4. Keep the charge of the Lord. In other words, obey what God says, Solomon. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies. 
uh, that thou mayest prosper. Look at verse 4, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning thee. Solomon, I'm telling you, you'll save yourself a lot of heartache if you'll do what I'm saying. Hey, by the way, how did that play out in Solomon's life? Well, he got away from it for a while. The wisest man who ever lived made some really crazy decisions. In fact, that may be what I'm preaching on in Sunday school. If you can be in Sunday school, I hope you will. Um, God told the kings, I'm going to preach a message called Life Fit for a King. And there's, he says, you do this, this, and this, and you don't do this, this, and this. And guess what the wisest man ever lived in? Everything God said don't do. That, that's man and his wisdom. You know, truly the wisest man who ever lived is Jesus Christ. And so, uh, what, what is the principle here? Micah 6, 8, he has showed the old man what is good. What did the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God? Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Hear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Matthew 5, 48, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, pursuing Christ-likeness. Le- uh, oh, Luke 2, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom. Stature in favor with God and him. Inventory, are you? So I wrote down uh, A, keep the charge of the Lord. Keep is to attend to. And charge is a, is a watch. It's the act of a sentry who's on duty. Keep the charge of the Lord. And then walk in the ways of the Lord. B is walk in the ways of the Lord. So keep the charge of the Lord and walk in the ways of the Lord. And it's really interesting that he specifies statutes, commandments, judgments, and testimonies. Let me just speak about that for a moment. The word statutes is the word um, ordinances. It's, it's like municipal regulations. And I'll differentiate these in a minute. The word commandments is specific commands, like the Ten Commandments. The word judgments is the pronouncing of a verdict. Um, it's, it's an authoritative opinion based on discernment. Like when a jury hears a case, they, they announce a verdict, and it's it's based on discernment. It's an authoritative opinion based on discernment. And then testimonies are divine decrees like the, the table, the tablets of Moses were called the testimonies. Um, basically, they're principles. So, so let me differentiate. Why does he go into those details? Very interesting. So back to ordinances for a minute. That's a law enacted by a legislative branch of government. It's a, it's a municipal regulation. I was in uh, Waterloo, Wisconsin, I'm sorry, Waterloo, Iowa, and the church I was preaching at didn't have a hookup for RVs, so they put us in a, a campground in the area. And we were walking around the campground, it was really nice, but they had this lake, and I thought, oh, that would be fun, go out boating or fishing or whatever. And we got up there, and there was a sign that said, no boating, fishing, or swimming. Local ordinance, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, that was the dumbest thing. Well, I found out later, there had been toxic chemicals dumped in that lake, and so everything was radioactive, and that's why you were not, well, duh, okay? Okay, now, there are, are some family principles you may have that vary from other families, but surely there are reasons for that. Um, I, I made a, a family, I, I, in fact, I wrote the word standards next to this. But we have some family standards. Now, please understand, we, we live in a time where there was such a reaction to standards and fundamentalism. I think we've swung the opposite way. Um, having standards is not legalism. Legalism is an attitude. Legalism is the attitude that, well, if I keep all these this checklist, that makes me spiritual. No, that, no, lists do not make you spiritual. But standards are meant for protection. Okay, so we have to be careful that we don't just knee-jerk against standards. 
we have a standard in our home about uh, movies and such that we uh, we don't watch anything that would have even profanity in it. Mm -hmm. So I don't really remember what you watch. Yeah, I did. We, I mean, we had a video player with a TV guardian, and you know, that was a help. And, um, why did we do that? Well, I based it on the principle of Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. You know, how much is okay to tolerate? Remember Bill Clinton, uh, uh, three strikes uh, principle, you know, so if you commit three crimes, then you go to jail. Well, whatever happened to, because sentence against an evil matter is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set them to do evil. All these guys get, get arrested in these Antifa rallies and they get released, what happens? They just go back to doing it again. So, so I never, okay, where are we going to draw a line? So my wife and I talked about, you know, we don't even, we don't even watch something that has perfect words in it. Oh, that's not easy to keep up, I guarantee that. And there are times people say, hey, you guys see this? You know, it's a Hallmark program. Oh, any bad language? Oh, I don't know. The guy asks his wife, honey, she said, oh, so we'll start watching it, and all of a sudden, man, you're 20 minutes in, and it's God's name in vain or some bad word, and, you know, turn it off. And Do I think that the people that shared that with me had a malicious intent, like, we are going to bring those people off their high horse? No, I don't think that at all. But the point is, we just don't notice it. We just get so dumbed down. So that's why I had a, a for our family, a statute. Okay, that'd be like an application, a standard. There was a principle, and on that I based a standard. Okay, and then commandments. Now those are specific commandments. Like, thou shalt not kill. That's pretty clear. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Pretty clear, okay? Very clear principles. Then you have judgments. Now, judgments are verdicts based on discernment. There were times my girls would say, hey, Dad, could we go over so-and-so's house and spend the night? We pretty much had a family principle that uh, we didn't do overnighters except for the immediate family. I heard too many stories about overnight situations. But even once in a while with family, I would say, yeah, I, no, I don't think we're going to do that to them. Well, why? I just have a sense. Did you ever sense something even though you don't have a thou shalt not from the scripture? That's discernment. And I'll tell you, there's some times when, oh, yeah, somebody else showed up at the house and that wouldn't have been a good thing, or, oh, no, our kids were really tired and they would have been really cranky. Sometimes you're making a decision based on just a, a gut sense. You've got to develop that by one thing. So that's not a clear cut. But then there's this one called uh, testimonies. And those are divine decrees, specifically stated truths. Uh, for instance, flee also youthful lust. Or, okay, how about one like, let your women adorn themselves in modest apparel? Well, because, you know, there, there was such a rigidity within some circles, well, you know, the skirt's got to come this far and tell you what, bless God, our women don't wear bridges and all that kind of thing. So sometimes we reacted against that, and now the pendulum has swung another direction. I remember telling my girls, okay, I'm going to loosen some things up in this family, but I want you to understand something. That does not negate the principle is modesty. Well, how do you, how to differentiate modesty? That's one of those you got to develop some discernment. And I'm praying, God, help my girls as they're now coming into adulthood to see this, to understand this. Because, you know, there is nakedness, uh, there's modesty, and there's immodesty. Well, blight and naked is obvious, right? But immodest doesn't mean naked. But modest and immodest is a distinction. Where do you, how do you figure that out? That's one of the things you've got to develop with the sermon. 
And so, you know, as a dad, I'm trying to help my kids when we're growing up. I had some pretty rigid principles. Well, my girl said, Dad, we need to do We're going to do it. So I said, all right, we need to talk to Let's stick to the principle of thing. So I'm trying to be very vulnerable with you, very transparent here. Do you, you see some distinction between statutes, judgments, ordinance, testament? And David is telling his son, Solomon, I want you to embrace all of this. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is what happened with your mom, Bathsheba, and me. And guess what? Solomon, for a huge part of his life, made a massive mistake at ignoring that. And then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And what does he say? I tried women, wine, wealth, and vanity of vanities. It's all emptiness. Let's come to the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. You know, if only I listened to Dad. Um, wouldn't you like to be the guy who listened to your heavenly dad and didn't have to look back with regrets on life? So that's what he's talking about here. Pursue maturity. Walk in the ways of the Lord. Keep the charge of the Lord. And you'll be blessed. I want to finish by reading you a little article that um, I came upon in a church years ago. And it was written by James Dobson, the one who founded the uh, Focus on the Family. And he's a medical doctor. And this was his, this is why he started a, a ministry back then called Focus on the Family. He said it occurred first in 1969. I was running at an incredible speed, working myself to death like every other man I knew. Eight or ten unofficial responsibilities were added to my full-time commitments at USC School of Medicine and Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. I worked 17 nights once straight without being home in the evening. Our five-year-old daughter would stand in the doorway and cry as I left in the morning, knowing she might not see me until the next sunrise. Although my activities were bringing me professional advancement and the trappings of financial success, my dad was not impressed. He'd observed my hectic lifestyle, but he felt obligated to express his concern. While flying from Los Angeles to Hawaii one summer, he used the quiet opportunity to write me a lengthy letter. It was to have a sweeping influence on my life. Let me quote one paragraph from his message, which was especially poignant. Danae, neighbor Dobson's daughter, Danae's growing up in the wickedest section of the world, much farther gone into moral decline than the world in which you were born. 1969 again, right? I've observed the greatest decision, I'm sorry, the greatest delusion is to suppose that our children will be devout Christians simply because their parents have been or that any of them will enter into the Christian faith in any other way than through their parents' deep personal travail of prayer and faith. And that prayer demands time. Time that can't be given if it's signed and conscripted and laid on the altar of career and mission. Failure for you at this point would make mere success in your occupation very pale and washed out. Indeed. Those words written without accusation or insult hit me like the blow from a hammer. It contains several themes which had the ring of eternal truth. First, it's more difficult to teach proper values today than in years past because of the widespread rejection of Christian principles in our culture. In effect, there are many dissonant voices, contradictory voices, which feverishly contradict everything for which Christianity stands. The result is a constant is a generation of young people who have discarded moral values of the Bible. The second concept of my dad's letter was the one that ended my, my criminal complacency. He helped me realize it's possible for mothers, fathers, to love and revere God while systematically losing their own children. Yeah, I once read a book, uh, or a little book called How Christian Schools Turn the Tide. 
And the author said, um, he worked in a girls' home ministry, and he said, we have kids come from some of the finest churches across the country. And he said, I'm noticing a trend. He said, it, it comes from the, the realm of vaccinations, um, immunization. He said, the whole idea behind, behind vaccines is but the whole idea behind vaccines was if you give a person um, a disease in an attenuated form or weakened form, then their defense mechanisms kick in and they will actually, in theory, never develop the disease. That's the concept. He said, if you give your children a weakened form of Christianity, they'll never get real Christianity. Yeah. Boy. He helped me realize it's possible for fathers and mothers to love and revere God while systematically losing their children. You can go to church three times a week, serve on its governing board, attend the annual picnic, pay your tithes, make all the approved religious noises, yet somehow fail to communicate the real meaning of Christianity to the next generation. This mission of introducing one's children to the Christian faith can be likened to a three-man relay race. First, your father runs his lap around the track, carrying the baton, which represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the appropriate moment, he hands the baton to you, and you begin your journey around the track. Then finally, the time will come when you must get the baton safely in the hands of your child. But, as any track coach will testify, relay races are won or lost in the transfer of the baton. There's a critical moment when all can be lost by a fumble or a miscalculation. Batons rarely dropped on the backside of the track when the runner has it firmly in his grasp. It's failure to, uh, the, if failure is to occur, it will likely happen in the exchange between generations. According to the Christian values which govern my life, my most important reason for living is to get the baton, the gospel, safely into the hands of my children. Of course, I want to place the baton in as many other hands as possible, and I'm deeply committed uh, to the ministry of the families that God's given me. Nevertheless, my number one responsibility is to evangelize my own children in the words of my dad, everything else seems pale and washed out when compared with that. Unless my son and daughter grasp the faith and take it with them around the track, it matters little how fast they run. The urgency of this mission has taken surely and me to our knees since before the birth of our first child. This is why we first found ourselves in prayer week after week, uttering this familiar petition. Lord, here we are again. You know what we need even before we ask, but let us say it one more time. When you consider how many requests we've made to you through the years regarding our health and our ministry and the welfare of our loved ones, please put this supplication at the top of the list. Keep our circle of, of our little family unbroken when we stand before you on the day of judgment. Compensate, compensate for our mistakes, our failures, parents. Counteract the influences of the evil world that would undermine the faith of our children. Especially, Lord, we ask for your involvement when our son or daughter stand at the crossroads deciding whether or not to walk the Christian path. They'll be, be beyond our care at that moment. We humbly ask you to be there. Send a significant friend or a leader to help them choose the right direction. They were yours before they were born, and now we give them back to you in faith, knowing that you love them even more than we do. Won't you join me in that prayer for your children? Dad, we really need you. That's what I said. That baton analogy. I ran, ran a little bit of track when I was a kid, and that is so true. The passing of the baton is where the race is usually lost. May God give us grace and pass the torture tree. Lord, thank you for the days we have to Help us to embrace the admonition of being man. Be a man of God. Teenage young guys here, 
single guys, married guys, grandparents. We have an array of ages and seasons of life, but we've got one common denominator. We desperately need you. And I thank you that you are not stingy with the grace that you dispense. You are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or even think. You do give us the principle. You said you have not because you asked not. Help us to know what to ask. Help us to see how needy we are and how powerful we are. Let me ask you this just before we go. Would you ask God to impress in your heart one or two valuable lessons to take home for this retreat? Right there, would you say, Lord, what do you want me? What's the foremost truth I need to apply? What's the principle that I need to carry on with? What's going to make me better coming out the other side of this retreat? How many already know what that is? Would you lift your hand and say, I've got a pretty good idea of what God wants me to take out of if we don't know yet, Lord, please give us that wisdom. For you said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask God, and it shall be given. So give us that wisdom. In the name of grace, for sure.